welcome listeners to the Religious Studies Project. I'm David McConaughey, and she is... Brianne Fallon. And this week, we have a really interesting podcast on a topic, maybe an area that I'd never really sort of delved into myself. And we actually have um, Sydney Castillo interviewing Jerry Espinosa Rivera, and they're talking about the secularization of discourse in contemporary Latin American neoconservatism. Take it away, Sydney and Jerry. Still in the fourth day of the EASR conference, 2019, in Dr. Estonia, uh, it has been a hectic week, but very, very rich in learning experiences, for sharing with colleagues and listening to the presentations of the research. And now I'm sitting here with uh, Professor Jerry Espinosa Rivera. Please be welcome to the Living Studies Prayer. Thank you. And uh, if you were so kind to introduce yourself. Okay. Um, I am a professor, assistant professor at the University of Costa Rica. Uh, I teach philosophy at the School of General Studies. And now I'm a uh, presenting a paper about the Latin American neoconservatism discourse and here in Tartu. Mm-hmm. Perfect. And we welcome you again here. Uh, it's nice to know that even uh, here in the ASR we have Latin American representative scholars are working and they, they take part in this other instances of the academic field, not only in Latin America or in Spanish-speaking countries, but also here in English-speaking fields and arenas, and it's very nice to know that our work is very known in that sense. Yeah, I, I, I agree. So, uh, the, just to jump right into the, into the question, the first question, I think to try to frame this your presentation that you've had here in the AASR. Uh, how can we understand conservatism in Latin America? I know it's very broad, but probably you can give us an overview. Okay. I uh, uh, differentiate between the traditional conservatism and the new conservatism. Uh, traditional conservatism in Latin America is closely related with the Catholic Church. You know that a Catholic Church have a, have had a very strong influence in Latin America, especially in politics. And the traditional conservatives have been closely related with the Catholic thought. So in my, in my presentation, I make a review of, of this uh, ideological uh, approach uh, of the Catholic Church, especially during the 19th century, you know, the, because uh, there is a, a big difference between the uh, Catholic uh, thought before the Council of the Vatican II and after the Council of the Vatican II. So the conservative, uh, the traditional conservatism is uh, deeply, closely related 
with the uh, Catholic thought, thought before the Council, the Vatican II. Mm-hmm. Uh, for example, the, the Catholic uh, Church uh, before the Council, the Vatican II, mm-hmm. uh, considered that uh, the only uh, salvation was uh, uh, possible uh, into the church. Nobody outside the church could be saved. And uh, uh, this uh, um, traditional conservatism was based on the idea of uh, that the only absolute truth was uh, um, the Catholic truth. That's uh, um, quite a big difference uh, between the, this traditional uh, and the new conservatives. Mm-hmm. And uh, if you could give us a, like a, somehow a comprehensive evaluation on how the, tra- the transition from conservatism to neoconservatism happened, I mean, you spoke a little bit about it. Second Council Vatican, but uh, maybe in more contextualized forms or in the local case of Costa Rica, it would be also interesting to know. Okay. Actually, I, I do a research uh, about uh, not only the new conservatism in Costa Rica, but in, in Latin America. Uh, I use uh, quite a famous in book right now in Latin America, mm-hmm. written by two Argentinians. Uh, one is uh, Agustin Laje, and the other one is Nicolas Marquez. They wrote a, a very popular book at this moment uh, that is called The Black uh, Book of the New Left. Uh, it's a, a book um, written to discredit uh, the, what they call the new left. And in, in, it's very interesting to read uh, in this book how they um, use, for example, the, the science in a different way that uh, was uh, used by the traditional conservatism. Because traditional conservatism was a very skeptical about science. Mm -hmm. Not only about science, but about reason in general. Uh, If you read, for example, the syllabus um, written by the Pope Pius IX, he he condemned the use of science as 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 it was the the truth. Uh, It was considered an error by the Pope Pius the IX. That was uh, traditional conservatism. In traditional conservatism, science was not the way to achieve the truth. But the way to achieve the truth was was the faith, the faith in the Catholic Church. Uh, In the neoconservatism, it changed. Uh, If you read the the book by Laje and Marquez, you can see that they use the science as uh, they consider science as uh, as a kind of certainty of absolute truth. 
uh, and that's completely different. In this case, science is not uh, a way uh, to um, uh, that was below the faith, as it was in the traditional conservatism, but the absolute truth. So now you mentioned this uh, well, traditional conservatism was associated with the Catholic Church and mm-hmm. your neoconservatism is associated with this uh, coming of this book. Uh, it seems to me that there are like different instances of institutionality. So how, uh, and also if this the book, uh, the contents of the book are also related to religion in some way, in which way? Yeah, that, that's uh, the, another very interesting issue, that uh, this new conservatism is not considered religious conservatives. Of course, uh, on the ground, they are, uh, they are uh, religious, but they don't use the religious discourse to justify their uh, ideas. They use science, they use uh, another kind of uh, justifications. For example, in, in this book, uh, the, the book of uh, the, the black book of the new left, they never quotate the Bible because they try to demonstrate that is science what demonstrates, the, what proves that, uh, for example, homosexuality is against nature or, uh, for example, that life uh, begins since the conceptions, and uh, it's uh, of course against the the uh, groups that support the legalization of the abortion, mm-hmm. and uh, there are many examples uh, that uh, uh, show how they use the science uh, of or, or a kind of discourse of science to demonstrate their uh, ideas. Mm-hmm. So it's uh, paradoxical at the same time mm-hmm. because uh, first neoconservatism was associated against science, and now neoconservatism is pro-science in that mm-hmm. sense. But underneath, they're both religious. Mm-hmm. That's very interesting to know. Uh, you mentioned something about homosexuality. Uh, to be more broad with this issue, I would like to ask: What are the discursive forms that neoconservatism? Display. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's interesting uh, to uh, to see how these new conservatives uh, they build a, a a kind of new enemy, uh, a kind of antagonism. For them, the their enemy is not now the what uh, was. Uh, during the Cold War, for example, the communism. But now their enemy is uh, more related with uh, sexuality. Uh, and uh, for uh, that's why they use uh, this uh, term, uh, gender ideology. Uh, the uh, term that essentially, essentially is an empty signifier. What does it mean when I say that it's an empty signifier? That it doesn't it doesn't have any meaning, uh, but they use it to attack or to discredit 
for example, uh, the ideas by Judith Butler or the ideas by Simone de Beauvoir or other theories, uh, uh, philosophers or uh, thinkers that have written about the gender. So they uh, um, create this concept they call gender ideology to discredit, but not only to discredit these uh, thinkers, but to discredit any uh, policy or any fight related with sexual or uh, reproductive rights. And that's why, for example, uh, in you can see in Latin America how these groups attack, for example, uh, the, any decision related with the uh, with the leg legalization of abortion, and they call it uh, gender ideology because they they created a kind of enemy and uh, uh, to discredit and uh, they um, use this uh, term this signifier to. Uh, discredit any policy related with sexual and reproductive rights. Uh -huh. Which is, I think, I believe also a statement throughout into Latin America, uh, this tendency mm -hmm. for the state to be, or at least, not regularly in favor for LGTB rights and sexual women's rights. Yes, yes. You can see it, uh, for example, it was a very important issue in Brazil, during the last uh, uh, election in Brazil, uh, the uh, Jair Bolsonaro, the president nowadays, he used this uh, this discourse to discredit his enemies. Uh, and it, what does it mean? It, it, does, it means that it's uh, not. Uh, um, it's uh, an important issue in, in Latin America. You know, it's not only a discourse of minorities, right? but uh, you can see in Brazil, you can see it in, in Colombia, in, uh, in Peru, in Chile, in many countries. This uh, discourse of the new uh, neoconservatism has, has grown. In my country, in Costa Rica, you can see it. For example, and now there is a big conflict about the use of uh, um, mixed toilets. You know, the, uh, it uh, it is you can be consider it like uh, something very uh, non-important, but the um, some religious groups, conservative groups, use it as a uh, an excuse to attack the government. And it's uh, um, that's a very good example of the how the new conservatism use this kind of uh, issues to discredit or to attack some policies. Mm -hmm. Like a point of entry for doing politics throughout Latin America. Yes, yes. Uh, it's interesting to see how, for example, uh, Laje and Marquez, uh, they are traveling for uh, all the, the region, for every country, presenting their book. And they, 
it's interesting to see how, for example, in Costa Rica, there was a big uh, controversy uh, about the presentation of this book. Uh, but you can see that uh, they they are looking for this kind of controversies because they know that uh, it it made them famous. Mm-hmm. Uh, for example, in the case of Costa Rica, uh, one of their presentations was forbidden, uh, was uh, in, in one of the universities, uh, because it was considered that uh, it was discriminatory. Uh, but uh, so uh, they made it a case. Yeah? They, they made uh, it uh, uh, an issue to, to become famous to, to, to be f- because of the controversy that it generated. And then also I believe that this is not only a tendency or it's not only dependent the shift of neoconservatism is not only dependent on this book. I believe that or you could give sincere that it's also a major tendency worldwide. Yes, yes, of course. I use the book uh, as an example. As a, because the book is uh, incredibly famous, it's very popular. It's uh, interesting to see how a book that, uh, if you read the book, it is academically is very weak. You know, uh, their arguments or their, uh, are com- very weak, uh, very uh, very easy to to uh, refutate them. But uh, they know that there are many people. Uh, who who are uh, uh, who who want to to read this kind of uh, um, arguments, and uh, that's why the, the, uh, the actually the the book you can find it for is free, so it's not, so it's uh, easier to people to achieve the, the book. It's uh, interesting how they, they they promote their ideas. Mm-hmm. And uh, going back to this issue of uh, traditional conservatism and neoconservatism, so it's not strictly now related neoconservatism to the Catholic Church. Um, no, uh, that's uh, another difference with uh, between the traditional conservatism and the new conservatism. The traditional conservatism was uh, deeply related, closely related with the Catholic Church. But uh, the neoconservatism uh, not only includes Catholics, but also neo-Pentecostalist parties. For example, in my country, in Costa Rica, there there is a a quite big neo-Pentecostal party uh, who was the, uh, who actually uh, participated in the last election and was one of the um, parties that obtained more votes. It was uh, disputed the presiden- presidency with the, um, well, uh, the candidate that finally won, but uh, it was uh, um, they, they obtained uh, 40% of the votes. That's really, really big. Uh, the most interesting is to see that uh, in spite that it was a neo-Pentecostalist party, many Catholics voted for 
for this candidate. It, uh, ten years ago, it was unimaginable. Uh, well, it's uh, in, very interesting to see how uh, this new conservative uh, discourse is attracting uh, not only um, people, uh, traditional Catholics, but uh, people who uh, belong to other kind of uh, churches. Right. Speaking of that, uh, I think that in sociological terms it's interesting how these contents of neoconservative discourse reach civil society in general. And that's what I also want to ask. What effect does it have in the shared imaginary of the general public? Yes, uh, the growth of these uh, parties uh, is, is not uh, um, only a, phen a political phenomenon, but a social phenomenon. Mm -hmm. That uh, it's uh, um, extremely related. In the case of Brazil, for example, you know that uh, there were a uh, uh, there was a big influence of uh, WhatsApp in the election of Bolsonaro. Uh, uh, that's uh, exactly the, the same case in, in Costa Rica. It was very... Uh, the social networks uh, were very important in the final uh, election uh, because it's uh, the easier to spread uh, fake news uh, through the, uh, this kind of networks. Uh, ten years ago or twenty years ago, it was uh, uh, more difficult to 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 do these kind of things. Now with the uh, social networks, uh, it's, it's uh, uh, easier to spread this kind of of uh, news. You, know, you can see it in the United States in the same in the uh, election of Trump. It is quite similar uh, process. Mm -hmm. Do you have any concluding remarks to kind of wrap up what we have been discussing so far? I just want to remark uh, how dangerous is uh, what's happening right now, not only in Latin America, but in many countries, even here in Europe. You can see it in Poland, in Hungary, and uh, in Slovakia and other countries. Uh, it's uh, a new kind of, of politics that uh, um, uses the hatred towards some groups, minority groups, for example, uh, the LGBTI uh, collectives and uh, or the feminist groups, uh, and this is new. And they they use it because they they realize that it's quite popular, you know. Uh, this kind of discourse is quite popular. Uh, people um, is uh, easily uh, believe these kind of ideas, you know, the, that uh, you can read some things about the homosexualization of the war, for example. Mm -hmm. These kind of uh, uh, crazy ideas that uh, they are spreading... Uh, and uh, it's uh, quite dangerous. You can see it, what happened uh, in the United States uh, in 2016, and you can see it in Brazil 
in the case of Latin America. And the, uh, this uh, phenomenon is uh, spreading around the world. Right. So it's akin even to like conspiracy theories. Yes, yes, so it's quite... Uh, uh, yes, uh, in the case of Latin America, of course, it's even um, worse, I would say, because it's also related with uh, problems that uh, uh, related with uh, poverty, inequality, and uh, other problems uh, that make that uh, easier to these people to be attracted to this kind of discourses. Right. Well, Professor Espinosa, it was very nice to have you here in the Science Project, and uh, we hope to have you again soon. Thank you. Thank you. Well, that was a very enjoyable podcast. Thank you so much, Jerry and Sydney, for your contributions. I'm really excited um, that the transition from Catholic to charismatic, evangelical, Pentecostal, that that transition in Latin America is getting the attention that it deserves. It's such a huge um, element of the narrative in the past a uh, few decades for Brazil and Guatemala and uh, so many of the countries that are there and within the political climate right now that Latin America is experiencing and their um, participation in so many of the world's kind of major issues, uh, the po politicization of these religious discourses is just such an important um, framework for trying to really understand how religion um, interacts with uh, the political segment. Um, so I'm so thankful that we get uh, these perspectives on things. Um, the, uh, uh, the union of politics and religion, Brie, I'm, I'm hearing that um, in Australia right now, uh, y'all are still working on um, religious freedom in in the law is is it am i right that there is um a court case that's coming up about um re religious expression there yeah it's been a hot topic um really over the last or even six months to a year perhaps the case that you're referring to is um the case involving um a footballer israel falau i think might be the one that's probably gained the most um, media attention and we spoke about it previously in a discourse episode actually when we looked at the state of religion in, in australia in that particular episode and uh in a nutshell for those who didn't hear that um israel falau uh quite a um a quite a well-known player um, from a charismatic conservative church out in uh, in Western Sydney, I, I believe. He posted on Facebook, on social media, which I'm sure will be the downfall of us all. He posted an uh, actually what was an image um, that was filled with text in which he denounced um, many minority groups, um, particularly the one that caused the most concern was that he said that homosexuals would be uh, all going to hell and um, he uh, lost his football contract, his sporting contract over that particular post on, on Facebook and he is now fighting in, uh, in the courts, as you say, 
unfair dismissal based on uh, freedom of religion. Um, he has not been reinstated. Um, he has not got his contract back as such as yet. Um, but this sort of uh, jumps off from, I think, this a larger discussion about uh, hate speech um, just about 12 months ago in, in the state of New South Wales in Australia, we passed new hate speech legislation and Jacinta Ardern in New Zealand is discussing similar hate speech legislation off the back of the Christchurch attacks as well. So it's definitely a hot topic um, in the Antipodean universe and we're seeing governments really responding in the legislation. Is there anything uh, particular going on similarly for, for you in the States, Dave? Oh, oh my, yes. <laughs> yes, there is. The, the Supreme Court's new uh, docket, their new um, selected cases for this year's um, session includes uh, uh, not only religious freedom uh, court cases, but also uh, several cases about um, discrimination based on gender identity and sexual preference. In the U.S., gender identity and sexual preference have not been federally protected categories for individuals and um, those that are employed by employers who have um, social positions that are against uh, homosexuality or um, gender expression that is more diverse than male-female um, or for people that are perhaps transitioning uh, from one gender to the other. Um, they have been very precarious in their employment and at risk. Uh, and so the Supreme Court is uh, opening the issue and it's it's a huge uh, a hugely important case. Some of the the information that I've been seeing says that it's a, a more significant um, uh, case about rights than the marriage doma cases that that happened about a decade ago. Wow. Um, and, and if that's true, um, uh, the U.S. is in for a, um, a very serious discussion. No matter the outcome, we're going to have a very serious discussion because there's going to be large numbers of people, whether um, the discrimination is upheld or whether it's rejected, that simply don't agree with the court's position on it. Um, it it's a it's a challenging time to to study these elements because the divisive nature of the public space for conversation in the U S right now is um, experiencing these really major landmark um, court decisions. And they're becoming politicized in um, a lot of unpredictable ways right now, given, given the kind of context that things are happening. Now, Dave, you'll have to either correct me on, on this or touch base with it ne with me next week and tell me if this thing that I heard is true or not. Speaking of sort of anti-discrimination legislation in the States, I was told, I believe this week, that the first federal anti-lynching law in the States passed in 2018, which I dropped my jaw at because I would have thought that that was already, you know, passed in the States. Gosh, I don't know that I've read the same thing. It it, it wouldn't surprise me the the dynamic between um, state legislation and federal legislation in the U.S. has been very inconsistent. Um, I know on sodomy laws, uh, for instance, um, that was definitely the case where there was no federal law 
um, preventing sodomy, um, cr- the criminalization of sodomy, uh, while many states had already outlawed it. Um, I'm, I'm guessing that, that similar kinds of things happened. You know, uh, I live in Massachusetts, uh, and it, even just in my lifetime, the blue book laws that prevented, um, uh, stores, specifically the sale of alcohol, uh, uh, from being open on Sunday for, for sale, uh, those are just repealed in my lifetime. And there, there are in some states still, um, still rules about that, even though, um, uh, one might think that that would not be an issue. So there's that kind of dynamic here in the U S where sometimes the willingness federally to legislate on an issue that has been ruled on by 50 different state courts, um, is uh, undesirable. And so we get that kind of dynamic going on. Well, if it makes you feel any better, one of our states has a law that you still have to have a place to tie up a horse outside every single pub in that state. So, I I mean, who knows? Having friends that, that work closely with horses, that's their, that's their dream. They, 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 Australia pubs and horses work hand in hand, but um, what do we have uh, coming up next week, Dave? Next week, we are going to be treated to a really excellent publishing roundtable. The um, European Regional Development Fund funded um, the roundtable in association with the University of Tartu and the Estonian Society for the Study of Religion. And it features just a really excellent cast that includes Michael Stausberg, Gregory Aulis, Joshua Wells, Valerie Hall, Jenny Butler, James White, all of this chaired by Suzanne Owens. This is a really experienced group of editors uh, who know a lot about how publishing worked, uh, including journals, including books. And uh, I'm really excited uh, that we can share this uh, with all of our listeners next time. Until then. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. The Religious Studies Project is sponsored by the British Association for the Study of Religions, the North American Association for the Study of Religion, and the International Association for the History of Religions. The Religious Studies Project is produced by the Religious Studies Project Association, SCIO, a Scottish charitable incorporated organisation charity number, SC047750. Brought to you by editors Brianne Fallon and David McConaughey, and founding editors Chris Cotter, that's me, and David Robertson, that's him. Our features are edited by Rebecca Barrett-Fox with marketing managed by Benjamin Marcus. Our Opportunities Digest managed by Ella Bach, podcast transcription by Helen Bradstock, and social media managed by Ray Radford. Don't forget, you can support the project by using our amazon.com.co.uk and .ca links or donating at patreon.com backslash projectrs. And you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, iTunes, and other portals. Thanks for listening.